Well, good morning. Welcome to Ebenezer. It is a blessing to be with you this morning. Whether you're joining us in person or you're joining us online, it is good to be together. My name is Wes Hodgson, and I have the privilege of being a part of the staff team here, and it's just a joy and a privilege to be able to open up God's Word with you. And so I would just ask before we move into studying the Scriptures together, would you join me in prayer over our time together? Father, we thank you for your presence here in this place. We thank you that you are with us. And God, we desire to hear from you this morning. We need your word. You, you say, Jesus, in the scriptures, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Father, we tune our hearts to your word this morning, not to the word of any preacher, but we turn our hearts to your word. Father, I ask in your kindness and in your mercy that you would place your anointing upon me as we go through the scriptures, that that which is of you would bear fruit in our lives and draw us closer to your son, Jesus, and that which is just of me would fall to the ground and just be forgotten. But Lord, we ask that you would do this and draw us near to yourself for the sake of your honor and your glory. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing on in our series looking at the book of 1 Timothy, which we're calling How Stuff Works. The letter of 1 Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his apprentices, Timothy, and he is giving him a crash course in leadership and on how to lead a complex congregation in the midst of a difficult circumstances. And so this book is incredibly timely and relevant to us always because it's God's word, but it's, particular, uh, it's particularly important for us as we navigate changes on the horizon for us here at Ebenezer. This morning, we're, um, before we jump into the text, I want to just highlight verse 15 for us of our passage this morning. Verse 15, Paul writes this. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and there are lots of pressures that are happening in the Ephesian church at this time. Last week, we looked at how there was pressure on the outside of the church. Ephesus was a bustling metropolitan city on the edge of Asia Minor, which is kind of modern-day Turkey, and it was a port city, so it was a major economic hub for the region. But at the same time, it was also a place where spiritual pilgrims would come, and they would come to worship and to offer sacrifices at the temple of Artemis or Diana, the Greek goddess of fertility. And so Ephesus itself was a difficult climate to try and pastor a church in, But there were not only pressures outside of the church, there were pressures within as well. There was a difficulty with false teachers beginning to rise up and teach false doctrine that was causing confusion and division within the community. And then on top of that, Timothy was likely facing his own pressures inside of himself as a young and likely insecure, reserved, maybe even a reluctant leader He was commissioned by the Apostle Paul to stay in Ephesus 
and to set this, church, set this church straight. And again, this is not exactly the easiest of tasks. And when I read verse 15, I can, I can almost imagine the Apostle Paul wanting to, to come alongside his young apprentice and say to Timothy, you need to keep the main thing the main thing. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is how this works. You can't get distracted or discouraged by everything else that's going on around you. You need to keep the good news in front of you always. This is how this works. And so this morning, we're going to look at how Paul wants to keep the good news of Jesus central as Timothy moves forward in his ministry. So let's pick up where we left off. In verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1, Pastor Cal looked at how these teachers in Ephesus, they were beginning to teach false doctrine. They were devoting themselves to secondary things in the law of Moses. And they were teaching, and what it was doing, it was, it was, it was leading to controversial and meaningless talk. It wasn't developing the life of love that the gospel truly produces. It was only making trouble and division. And so Paul continues in his line of thinking in verse 8, and he says this, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Clearly, these false teachers were mishandling the Old Testament. And whether they were doing so just because they were unaware, or they were doing it blatantly, trying to teach things that were false, whatever the problem was, the mishandling of the Old Testament was the issue. And so the question for us today in this verse is simply this, what is the proper way then to handle the Old Testament? Do we, as New Testament followers of Jesus, do we just dismiss the Old Testament completely because we have Jesus now? Do we, do we need that? Or do we try to keep every letter of the law succinctly as perfectly as we can in the Old? Is that how we need to handle it? And Paul writes about this extensively in the book of Romans, and we don't have time to go through all of, or a survey of all of Romans, but I'm just going to direct our attention to a few passages. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law's job was not to show you a list and say, do everything on this list and then you'll be right with God. It was a way of showing God's righteousness and His holiness and at the exact same time to kind of create an awareness that we're never going to live up to this. We are sinful, broken people. Psalm 15 verse 1 and 2 say it this way. The psalmist says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Who, who, can, who can actually be with you and live with you? And the psalmist answers, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. Now, can we be honest for a moment? Can, any, can, can this describe any of us? If we're being sincere, can this describe any of who we are? Is there any one of us whose walk is perfectly blameless, never having done anything wrong? Does any of us answer truthfully all the time perfectly? And obviously the answer to that is no. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. We use the law properly when we allow it to reveal God's righteousness 
and to show us our sinfulness. This is how we use the law properly, but there is another way in which we use the law properly. Jump back with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, 21 and 22 say this, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God gifts us his righteousness when we trust in his son, Jesus Christ. But what's amazing about this passage is that Paul actually says, the law and the prophets testify to this reality. In other words, he's saying, we know that God gave the law, we know that God gave the prophets, but even within the law, we know and we understand that there's no way we can keep this. There's no way we can actually hold to this standard. And the law and the prophets, they testify to that in and of themselves. So what this does is it reveals to us that we need a savior. We need a savior. Hebrews 10 verse 1 explains it this way. Hebrews 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. When you see a shadow on a wall, the point is not to focus on the shadow. The point is to focus on what is causing that shadow. This is what the law is doing. It is pointing to the reality that God is righteous, that we are sinful, and that we desperately need a Savior. We use the law properly when we allow it to reveal God's righteousness, to show us our sinfulness, and to point to our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how we need to use the Old Testament properly. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, when he's interacting with the Pharisees, he says, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life, but you don't recognize that all of these scriptures point to me. All of these scriptures point to me. This is how we need to use the law properly. And now as we continue in our passage, Paul, in no uncertain terms, he's very clear, he's going to say and he's going to outline exactly who it is who needs this Savior, Jesus. He outlines one group in verses 9 through 11, and then he outlines another group in verses 12 and 13. So let's look at each of those. Verses 9 through 11 say this, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill mothers and fathers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Sometimes in our sin, it could just go in the category of rebellion. That's a good word for it. It's just a stubborn refusal to accept God's will or to accept God's ways on a matter. And Paul has many lists like this throughout the New Testament. I just want to show you one of them in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Paul writes this, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, 
hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I remember reading this as a 16-year-old kid, this passage in particular, My family, we grew up kind of nominally Christian until my mother came to a a genuine faith in Christ when I was about 12 or 13. And at that time, I received a Bible, and so for the next few years, I kind of would skim and read it at times or whatever. And, And there was this one night that I was reading in Galatians 5, and I was reading this particular passage. And this the the passage that jumped out at to me was where Paul mentions drunkenness. And it just it stuck out to me like a sore thumb because at that point in my life, I was in the party scene. I was just living it up with my friends, engaging in that kind of behavior. And I remember literally reading this passage. I remember looking at the Bible as Paul was speaking to me through Galatians and it just, the word drunkenness just leapt off the page. And I remember to myself going, oh boy, and this is what I did. I slammed it shut, and I put it on my bedside table, and I said, I don't want to hear it. And I remember doing this in my mind, thinking to myself, I don't want to hear it. I'm enjoying my life very much right now. Thank you very much. I'm going to keep living how I want to live. And I remember I stuck it on my bedside table, and I just ignored it. Now, but at the same time, I knew through reading this, this wasn't the life that God had for me. Sometimes our sin is just rebellion. It's just an unwillingness, a stubbornness to accept God's will and embrace God's ways. Now sometimes like me, our sin, like that example, sometimes our sin is very clear. It's very obvious. We know exactly what we are doing. We just don't want to follow God's will on a matter. Other times, though, we're just, we're ignorant. We don't actually know. Paul mentions this a little bit further in verse 12. He says, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. There are sometimes, maybe if you weren't brought up in the ways of Jesus, you didn't, you just literally didn't know. It's like, oh, that was a sin? I, I didn't know. And there's, sometimes there's just things where there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen. But whatever it is, whether it is ignorance or whether you know full well what you're doing, and you just don't want to follow God's ways, rebellion is just that. It is saying, no, I'm going to do this my way. And there's a whole list of things that we could engage this on, whether that's dealing with authority above us in our lives, how we deal with coworkers and neighbors, how we handle our sexuality, how we deal with our money. Whatever the case is, God has a path on a matter. He has a way in which he wants us as his followers to engage in, and it's our job and responsibility to trust him in that, to yield ourselves to that, but sometimes we just don't. Sometimes we just look at what I did when I was a teenager. I read it plain as day, and it was like, yep, no thank you. Do my best Frank Sinatra impression. I did it my way, right? And I just, you don't want to do it. I just want to do my own thing. Sometimes our sin is like that, but not all the time. And this is where Paul gets a little more personal with his young apprentice, Timothy. Verses 12 and 13, he writes this. 
I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Before Paul was the apostle Paul, he was a Jewish leader named Saul. And Leighton shared a little bit more of his story a few weeks ago, how he violently opposed the church in its infancy until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And Paul goes into a little bit more of his personal story in Philippians 3 where he says this, Philippians 3, 4, and 6. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul here is citing his religious credentials and accomplishments, and that at that time, that was his crowning achievement. He had done it. He says, of the law, I'm faultless. He actually believed in his, in his mind, I've kept the law. I've actually done it. I've actually accomplished this. But now in light of Jesus, everything, all of that accomplishment, that's just a pile of garbage to him. It's nothing compared to what he has now. Because you see, for Saul, before he became Paul, his religious life was everything. It was his devotion and his commitment and his religious observance that was the centerpiece of his life. He thought to himself, I'm worshiping God, but in reality, he was worshiping his own devotion. He was worshiping his own commitment to the cause. Sometimes our sin is rebellion, but sometimes it's religious. Sometimes our sin is religious. And see, for some of you, you could totally relate to my story right, of just kind of a willful rebellion. I know what the sin is. I just don't care. I'm going to do my thing. But for others of you, maybe it's Paul's story that you can relate to. Because for some people, religion becomes their savior. They work extremely hard to present a good, clean image. They keep all the rules. They try to keep all the standards. And while there is an outward appearance of righteousness, inwardly they never actually learn to trust God. They never actually learn to rest in God. They never actually learn to put their hope and their trust in Him because it's all about them and what they can accomplish. And what makes religion so terrible is that it never, actually, it never actually gives you the rest that it promises. It only leads to one of two things. On the one hand, it leads to pride, right? On the one hand, it leads to pride. You do all the things. You check all of the boxes. You keep all of the standards. You do everything that you're supposed to do. And then you sit back and you go, hey, I did it. I've accomplished it, and what, what happens is not genuine righteousness, what happens is self-righteousness. You become arrogant and smug, and you think to yourself, well, I'm better than everybody else, because I kept the rules. I played, I played in the bounds, and nobody else did, and that's why I'm righteous. And no, that's self-righteousness, and it's not the way it is. So that's the one thing that religion leads to. The other thing it leads to is despair. 
Because if you play the religious game, what ends up happening is you try to keep the standards. You try to do everything right. You try to keep the rules as best as you possibly can. But then what happens is you inevitably fail. You inevitably fall short. You inevitably, like, you succumb to temptation or whatever it is. And then you're sucked into this cycle of shame and guilt and despair because it's all on you. You have to make this work and you can't. And this is what's so, this religion can't save us. It can't save us. And neither can rebellion save us. It is only Jesus who can save us. Religion can't make the cut because we're we're not righteous enough in and of ourselves. And rebellion is not going to lead you to the life God has for you either. It is in Jesus that we have righteousness. It is in Jesus that we're made right with a holy God. And it's in Jesus that we are welcome to walk with God in this beautiful life of fellowship. It doesn't matter whether your sin is rebellion or your sin is religion. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and all of us are in that boat. He came to redeem us and to reconcile us back into relationship with the Father. That's what it's about. It's about walking with God and actually enjoying relationship with Him. This is central to the gospel, and it's central to what Jesus is trying to encourage Timothy. And Timothy, don't get off track with all of these other things. Don't get distracted or discouraged. Keep the gospel central as you move forward in your ministry. And for the rest of our time this morning, Paul is going to outline three different things that the gospel shows us. In verse 14, he says this firstly, the grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The first thing the gospel shows us is God's grace. The gospel shows us God's grace. Grace is this word in the Greek, it's charis, and what it means is a kindness or a favor or, or a gift towards someone that does not deserve it. Grace means that God is incredibly kind to you, even though you do not deserve it at all. But did you notice what Paul says in verse 14 about how he received that grace? He says, he, God poured it out on him abundantly. I love that picture. God pouring out his grace abundantly upon Paul. Paul uses this similar language in Ephesians 1, talking about grace. He says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That word lavished means to exceed the natural limits, to have more than enough, to have an excessive amount of something. Think of when you're, you're pouring something and it just begins to overflow over the cup. That's, that's what this word lavish means. Now, in the Hodgson home, we love breakfast. Okay, give us breakfast 
any meal of the day, we're, we're game for it, okay? My kids love waffles, they love crepes, they love pancakes. You think of any way to do a pancake, we have probably tried it at least once. We love it, we are all game for it. And we love the real deal maple syrup at our house too. Like, we're not buying any of the cheap stuff, we're buying real deal, 100% real maple syrup. And when my kids, they decide that they're going, we're having pancakes, if Tamara and I are not careful, they're just going to go full on Will Ferrell and Elf on that thing. And they're just going to open that sucker wide and just dump it all out. And we're just going to be like, oh, like, that, that bottle costs like $70. Like, it's, like, it's crazy right now. Like, you've got to chill out like easy on the syrup, right? Because it's going to be half gone if we're not careful. I love this movie too, by the way. Like, this scene is hilarious. She looks at Elf and she's, you really like your sugar, huh? Is there sugar in syrup? Yeah, uh-huh, then yes. <laughs> He's just so excited about the sugar. Anyway, it's a great movie, but anyway. I share that with us jokingly, but all kidding aside, this is the way that God gives us grace. This is the way that he does it. God is not stingy with his kindness, and he's not cheap with his favor towards us. He's just not. Think about the story of the prodigal son. The son comes home after having blown his entire inheritance. He winds up broke and homeless and starving, and he runs back to his father thinking, I'm going to have to beg, but who cares? I'm starving to death. And he goes home to the father, and what does he get? He gets a father that's running towards him. And he, the father puts a robe around him and puts sandals on his feet and he embraces him and he, he gives him a ring and he says, welcome back to the family. All the, all the authority that the family has, I'm giving it to you once again. And he, he throws a party and he kills the fattened calf and it's just this huge celebration. It is excessive. It is excessive and that's the way the father is with his grace towards all of us. Or think about Paul. Paul was once a persecutor of the church. He was once trying to destroy the church. And yet, once God got through to him with his grace, he looks at Paul and he says, Yep, you were once persecuting the church. Now you're going to plant them. <laughs> you were once persecuting the church. Now you will plant them. Because I'm going to get, my grace is coming for you. This is how he does it. And, and Paul, he, he reiterates this in verse 12. He think, just go back to verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Could you imagine Paul for a moment looking at these communities of faith? And he's looking at the eyes of some of these people and he's saying like, I, I dragged some of your family members off to jail. Like I was there approving their execution and now God has considered me trustworthy to preach the gospel and to, to start these new communities of faith. Like God is outlandish with his grace. It wasn't enough for God to be like, yeah, yeah, Paul, we'll save you. Go over to the sidelines, please. You did some really messed up stuff. No. God says, no, we're going to save Paul. And once I get through with my grace, he's going to plant churches. Like God's grace is so incredible. It's outlandish. He just, he lavishes it. He's not cheap with it. He pours it out abundantly because that's how he does it. But he continues on 
in verse 15 and 16. He says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy. The second thing that the gospel shows us is God's mercy. The gospel shows us God's mercy. Mercy is defined as the quality of showing compassion or pity towards someone who is in need. And throughout the scriptures, mercy is often linked to forgiveness or withholding judgment towards someone who is in fact guilty. So while grace is about extending kindness that you do not deserve, mercy is about not receiving the punishment or the consequence or the discipline that you actually do deserve. That's what mercy is about. And in the book of Micah, the prophet helps us see more of who God is in relation to his mercy. Micah 7, 18 says this, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That word delight means to take pleasure in, to be pleased with, or to enjoy doing something. God delights in showing mercy. He is excited when he gets to show mercy. He is happy and joyful and excited when he gets to pour out his forgiveness. This is what, it, this is what the word delight means. He delights in showing mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I can be pretty reluctant to show mercy. Someone has hurt me, someone has offended me, I have been wronged legitimately, and I know I need to forgive someone, but I'm usually not psyched about it. <laughs> I'm usually not like, yes, I get to show mercy to this person, I get to forgive them, this is going to be so great. No, usually I'm ticked, because I've been hurt, I've been wounded, this, like, this hurt me. Now I will forgive, but at the same time, am I like psyched about it? Not really. <laughs> It's hard. It's painful. It's like, yes, I'm going to do this. And usually the feelings of joy come later and the, the release comes later because there's, there's joy in walking in God's ways. But am I psyched about it? Not really. But that's not how God is. That's not how God is. He is delighted when he gets to show mercy. He is joyful when he gets to show compassion and forgiveness. It's who he is. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. God is waiting for us to confess our sins, to just own up where we've made mistakes, where we've got it wrong, where we've blown it. We ju he's just waiting for us to own up. We're like, would you, would you just admit that you're wrong? <laughs> just admit that you screwed this up, and I'm, I'm right here. I'm right here waiting to forgive you. I'm right here waiting to show you mercy. You don't have to grovel. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to, you don't have to go through some elaborate... Just come. Just come and say you're sorry. Just come and admit it. I'm, I'm right here waiting to forgive you. And this is the God, the, the gospel displays God's mercy. And you might say to yourself, well, that's all well and good, Wes, but you don't know how I've missed the mark. 
You don't know how I've screwed up. And you're right, I don't know. I don't know how you've blown it, but I know how Paul did it. I know how Paul screwed up, and when he looks at his old life, he says, I'm the worst. I'm the worst of sinners. When Paul looked back on his old life as Saul, a self-righteous, arrogant, violent man who persecuted the church, he looks at himself and he says, there is nobody lower than me. And yet it was for that exact reason, the scripture says, for that exact reason that God showed him mercy. It was for that reason God said, I'm going to show this man mercy so that when anybody looks at his life and they look at what they've done, they can say to themselves, well, if God forgave Paul for what he did, then he can forgive me for what I did. He, his life is now an example, a living testimony to say there is nothing you have done that God cannot forgive if he showed mercy to Paul, he can show mercy to you. But there's one more thing that the gospel shows us in the rest of verse 16. Verse 16 says this, But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and have eternal life. The third thing the gospel shows us is God's patience. The gospel shows us God's patience. Lots of times in the world that we are living in, we can look at everything that is going on around us, everything that is happening, and we can say to ourselves, like, like God, what are you doing? What is happening out there? Are you not aware of how dark it's getting out there? Are you not aware of how crazy this world is getting? When are you coming back? And just set this whole thing straight. Like, it's getting harder and harder. What, when are you coming back? When are you going to make this all right again? And in the book of 2 Peter, the apostle has some interesting words to that question, that line of thinking. Because those are real questions that we all have. But in 2 Peter 3, he says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. We are prone to forget this, by the way. Do not forget this, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why doesn't God just come back already and set this whole thing right and straight? Because he's patient. Because he's patient. He does not desire that any should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. We do not and we cannot claim that we understand all of how God's timing works. We simply need to trust that he is good and that the waiting is not in vain. There is a purpose to his delay that we cannot fully see yet. And in the meantime, while we wait, we wait with an understanding that God is patient and he's merciful and he's not longing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and come into that right relationship with God. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would come forward to lead us in our closing song. But as they come, I want to encourage you it doesn't matter what you have done, whether your sin is the sin of rebellion or your sin is the sin of religion. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and all of us are there. And God is waiting for you. He is waiting for all of us when we turn to him to extend us grace, to extend to us mercy, and to extend to us patience. All we have to do is turn towards him. And while we take this last moment to sing praises to the Lord, we're going to have staff up front. If there's anything that you need prayer for or would like to pray with someone, or if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to make that decision today, you need to set things straight with God, we would be more than happy to pray with you and to help you in that process. Or if you just need someone to to pray alongside of you, there'll be staff up here at the front. You're more than welcome to come. But let me pray as our worship team leads us. Father, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for your good news that, that shows us your grace and your mercy and your patience. And we thank you, God, that this good news is good news for our eternity, but it is also good news for today. That right now, God, we can begin living in your grace. We can begin living in your mercy. And we can begin living in your patience. And God, I pray for all of us that this would ring true in our hearts and in our spirits. That we would become the kind of gracious and merciful and patient people to the world around us that is so lacking in all of these things, God. Show us your way in this, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.